Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we'll be bringing you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. This week, we return to the subspecialty of uveitis, and we'll get to that in one minute. But before that, just to let you know that on March 15th, if you are keen to learn more about uveitis, there is a educational webinar on non-infectious uveitic macular edema. It's chaired by Badram Bodaghi and Carlos Pavezio, who have lined up a world-class faculty to cover everything from classification, diagnosis, imaging, local therapy, immunosuppression, and biologics and surgical management. So everything you really need to know about non-infectious uveitic uh, macular edema brought to you by a world-class faculty. That's 8 p.m. CET on Wednesday, March 15th. More details and registration will be open soon on the Uretina website. All right, time for our discussion. And the very same Carlos Pavezio of Murfields in London and one of the chairs of our uveitis subspecialty here at Uretina will be hosting a discussion on acute retinal necrosis. Uh, his guests are Monsef Kerala, University of Monaster in Tunisia, and Sarah Tuhami from Sorbonne University in France. Carlos, it's a great pleasure to have you back on the podcast. I hope you're well. Over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Uh, nice to be back again. And thanks for the Retina for opening space for us and UVITIS to be able to share our experience uh, with the wider community. It's a real pleasure to have the, the presence here today of, of uh, uh, Monsef uh, Karala and uh, Sarah Tuwami, uh, who will be uh, really bringing this lively discussion about acute retinal necrosis. I think it's a, a subject which is relevant to anyone who practices retina uh, and, and uh, more so for those who are uveitis specialists. But this is a subject that everyone needs to know about because these are really true emergencies when they appear in front of us and we need to know what to do with them. Uh, and uh, I, I really hope that at the end of this podcast tonight, you, you have a very good idea of the up-to-date status of our play with the acute retinal necrosis. So, Monsef, Sarah, uh, good evening to both of you and, and uh, welcome. I think we should start probably by uh, taking your views on, on how you see the definition of ARN, because things have, have kind of been evolving a bit in terms of how ARN is being diagnosed or defined, uh, and, and I think uh, especially considering the role of the pathogen as well. So I wondered if you'd like to uh, give your views about that. Uh, so whoever wants to start, Sarah, ladies first. So Sarah, please. Well, thank you again for the invitation. Um, as you said, ARN is really a devastating disease, and I think that it's really one of the few and rare emergencies in ophthalmology. We have to act very quickly to start therapy as soon as possible and really try to avoid uh, the complications. As far as the diagnosis is concerned, I think that we have to provide our uh, uh, listeners tonight with a very easy uh, things to navigate. There has been a couple of classifications, the 2014 classification of the, the Japanese, and then we have the Sun classification, which is um, really um, has been published in 2021, which is probably more for clinical trials. But um, I think that we really need to be uh, very straightforward and provide them with something easy to remember. Uh, when you have someone who comes in with uveitis and areas of retinal necrosis or whitening of the retina in the periphery, I think that it really has to ring a bell and then you uh, really have to act like it's ARN. Uh, this is really important to remember. And something else worth being noted, uh, if you have a patient that comes in with a 
very uh, severe uveitis, very severe retritis, and you do not see the fundus, then again, I think it's worth performing an anterior chamber tap to look for a viral cause and really start prompt therapy. I don't know if you want to discuss the, the classification criteria, if it's worth uh, mentioning the details. Sorry, I think it's a good point. I think the interesting thing about this criteria is that if we look back at Gary Holland's initial criteria, the American Academy uh, many years ago, uh, when trying to unify these uh, different names were coming up at the time, uh, and, and really emphasizing the the fact that the immune status of the host wasn't important, that wasn't important, the, the, the etiological agent, what mattered was the clinical presentation. So they defined very clearly what the clinical presentation was. And now we see with the sun, of course, as you said, it might be more relevant for research purposes and all that, but uh, it's seeing now the, the presence of the pathogen, defining the pathogen or finding the pathogen has come into play as, as an important part of that. So I, I wonder now if, if how we can, in your view and Monsef as well, how, how relevant it is that you really have to find a pathogen in these cases to define this is hard. Yeah, I think it's really important to find out what pathogen is involved. First of all, to adapt the treatment. And second, to really provide the justification of the duration of therapy. I think if you do not know if this is viral, it's really pretty complicated to prescribe treatment for six months or even years. Uh, so again, I think that viral uh, identification is really has become really important. And it's very easy to get. Now we have RT-PCR. Uh, I think it's widely available and widely used. And um, I think, yeah, it has to be done. In my practice, personally, I, I mean, it's really mandatory. Okay, so let me just, Monsef, Monsef, your, your practice now, is this, uh, what is your take on how you diagnose your patients? You're happy with just clinically calling this R, or you feel also that I need to find, I need to prove it's a virus and which virus it is? Thank you. I, I think that the condition should be better termed as herpetic necrotizing retinitis or as herpetic panuveitis with necrotizing retinitis. It is important to uh, emphasize the link between ARN and uh, herpes viruses and also to highlight uh, the uh, prominent vitreous inflammation as well as uh, anterior uveitis associated with necrotizing retinitis. And uh, there, there is an important uh, key point in uh, our clinical practice. Uh, the mean time for a symptom onset to diagnosis may be uh, about two weeks in some uh, cases, and misdiagnosis uh, uh, in ARN is high. So it is important for us to make a clinical diagnosis of ARN, to think about uh, ARN in any patient with anterior uveitis, uh, not uh, to forget to uh, to perform a dilated fundus examination, not to miss uh, uh, necrotizing retinitis and other fundus findings. And uh, uh, although uh, diagnosis of ARN is uh, is primarily clinical, uh, we need uh, PCR uh, confirmation of, of the viral cause of ARN. So it's in my in our clinical practice. Clinical diagnosis is very important. However, I think that we need confirmation with PCR. 
So I think, Monsef, you the point you're making is the, the practice, in a way, has changed over time. I remember in the early stages when we had a clinical diagnosis, most of us were satisfied with uh, recognizing the clinical pattern and then just proceed with treatment. But we, we all have, and we, we published something on that, uh, the, the finding the virus is important in the sense of how you tailor your intervention. Uh, so we, we have the practice now of tapping all the patients on, on arrival and then proceeding with, with the, the management, which I will not discuss now because it's a topic of our of our discussion a bit further down the line. So uh, we are emphasizing here very clearly the importance of uh, the clinical findings and, and the PCR, the role of PCR from an AC tap or a vitreous tap to uh, allow you to conclude, yes, it's viral. This is the virus I, I can see uh, in the eye. So we come to the point now that you found that, you've done all that stuff. So how are you going to imagine your patient? How do you manage the acute situation of the patient who just walked into your emergency area and clinically you make the diagnosis, you take your tap? So clearly, you no, know, most of us are not going to be waiting for the tap results to proceed with management because it's, it's critical the time in these cases. So how do you manage this patient? So let's reverse now, ask Monsef to go first now. How do you go about managing your patient, Monsef? Uh, my approach to a patient with clinical uh, findings uh, suggestive of acute necrosis is as follows. Hospital admission or inpatient management. I consider ACTAP uh, for PCR for herpes viruses uh, to obtain a baseline workup to assess uh, the patient's uh, immune status to check the, the kidney function and to exclude other differential uh, diagnosis, mainly syphilis, uh, tuberculosis, and toxoplasmosis, and uh, to perform fundus photography and uh, with the wide field uh, uh, imaging if available, and to start treatment with any uh, delay, and treatment is started using uh, intravenous antivirals. This is my approach to any patient uh, with uh, suspected as having acute HN necrosis. Okay, thank you, Monsef. And, and Sarah, how do you do that in Paris? Yeah, I think it's basically exactly the same. If you have any kind of suspicion of ARN, then you really have to admit your patient. Uh, it's We hospitalize them, all of them, uh, because we want to make sure that they get the right therapy and uh and so it's really the right way to do it. As Professor Kalala mentioned, we have to exclude the other diagnoses, including, of course, toxoplasmosis and syphilis, and uh, really try to um, provide the patient with the best care possible, which is in this setting, uh, inpatient. Okay, so point here is, uh, you, you said about admitting your patient and uh, intravenous uh, antivirus, Monsef was saying, I think these days, lots of people have been using oral antivirus. So uh, rather than using uh, intravenous infusions, going for a VAWI cycle here at a higher dose than which is normally used. Is that something you consider for your patients? Honestly, uh, I want to make sure that the patient take, takes their medication. <laughs> this is okay. really severe. The complications can lead to a loss of vision. Uh, it can lead to loss of vision in both eyes. So we didn't mention that. This is really important. So we really want to make sure that the patient gets the right amount of medication. And the best way to do it is to have, to, to have the patient uh, hospitalized and, uh, and administer an IV therapy. So yeah, there has been a couple of papers showing that uh, treatments given orally at really high doses uh, can be as good as IV, but then um, you want to make sure that they get the, the treatment. So your concern is compliance. So the patients may not take the medication and eventually get worse because of that. 
Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, we we have. Uh, I'll just briefly mention the the experience in London because we really it's very hard for us to admit these patients uh, regularly, especially for a longer period of time. So we have been more on the on the the ambulatorial type of management rather than uh, inpatient management using a lot of our patient or oral high dose. So it's, it's just to show that actually there are different ways in which you can do that. But you're absolutely right. We have to be sure that the patients are making use of the treatment. Otherwise. Everything you're doing is is, is useless, and and uh, the patient will deteriorate. So the point you're making, both of you, is very important point. That if the patient's an inpatient, you have control, and you can uh, then uh, be absolutely certain that the treatment is is going. Uh, the one thing we didn't mention right at the beginning is your practice to put an injection of antiviral in the eye at the time of admission. Do you do that, and you repeat that injection? What what is your view on how to use that? Okay. In Paris, we're really being aggressive with our patients. And I think that we published uh, our rate of retinal detachment is really low. It's uh, between 15 and 20% uh, compared to what has been published in the literature, uh, which is up to 85%. So yeah, what we do is what we hospitalize patients, we give them IV therapy. And then as long as they are hospitalized, they get uh, intravitreous antivirals as well twice a week during the whole um, hospitalization, which is two to three weeks. Uh, and after that, they still get uh, injections. I personally use uh, some kind of treat and extend. I do not stop right away. I kind of taper the number of injections they get. And once the lesions are healed, then I can consider stopping injections. Okay. Well, Seth, is that your practice as well? How do you go about these injections? I agree with Sarah. However, we uh, we use intravitreal uh, injection uh, in combination with the systemic uh, treatment in patients with severe aggressive uh, retinitis and uh, in refractory cases. We don't use uh, systematically intravitreal injection in all patients with acute retinal necrosis. So patients with moderate or mild to moderate severity can be treated with, uh, with the systemic treatment uh, alone. And as you know, uh, recent data show that combined systemic and intravitreal uh, treatment uh, is better than uh, systemic treatment alone. However, I think that there are some very recent data showing that intravitreal treatment uh, does not uh, improve rates of retinal detachment uh, as in patients with acute retinal necrosis, uh, as compared to uh, treat, uh, patient treated uh, with systemic uh, antivirals alone, I, I think that this uh, this option is very important. Uh, but we we have to make sure that uh, this uh, uh, really adds this, uh, efficacy in terms of uh, risk of retinal detachment and uh, in. Uh, that this uh, adjunctive treatment uh, improve outcomes in terms of visual acuity and in uh, terms of uh, regression of retinitis. Okay. Can I Thank add you. information to this uh, discussion? Uh, yep. We published a recent paper in 2022, and we really looked at the prognostic factors of retinal detachment, and we found... I. I know that the, the sample is really uh, small, but we found that patients who did not get intravitreous injections and those who got less than five were the likeliest to detach their retinas. So that is why we do it, especially in patients with VZV. VZV is really worst case scenario. Uh, unfortunately, it's really prevalent. So, uh, yeah. 
No, good point. I, I, I think I'm probably in between the two of you. I do use injections. Uh, I, I have an injection usually given on the first presentation of the patient, the time we take the, the tap, uh, and then uh, the patient start immediately on systemic therapy, and injections are offered uh, uh, after that, depending on the severity of the presentation. Uh, so in a way, I'm in between the two, Sarah and Monsef, because we do re-inject patients, but not necessarily throughout the course of, uh, of the several weeks, but for a few injections, if they're looking very aggressive. And, and then I can see signs that it's responding, then we, we back off on that. Uh, but question now for you, regarding your systemic therapy. So you have your IV infusion, you admit your patients. When you discharge your patients with oral, because you're going to continue with your antiviral orally, how long you keep that oral therapy for? Uh, Monsef, please go first. Uh, so intravitreous uh, treatment for seven to ten days, followed by uh, oral treatment with uh, three grams uh, per day of valacyclovir for at least three months, followed by a gradual tapering. However, uh, we uh, we tend to have a lifelong administration of valacyclovir. Uh, to prevent uh, f- uh, fellow eye involvement. And as you know, fellow eye involvement can occur many years after, after the involvement of the first eye. So we keep our patient on one gram valacyclovir for the, the rest of the life. So this is for all patients, Monsef. So every patient with acute retinal necrosis that you treat, you leave them on, on lifelong maintenance antiviral. Yes. Okay. So Sarah, what is your take on this? How do you do that? Well, I totally agree with uh, Professor Kerala. When they leave the hospital, they have a prescription of uh, valacyclovir, uh, three grams a day. But we tend to use it for, if we can, for six months, as long as the patient tolerates this um, kind of doses. And then we taper it down to one gram uh, per day for life. I think, uh, again, this is one of the most really a severe forms of retinitis. So you want to make sure that uh, everything goes well, especially for the, for the second eye, for the, the other eye. Okay. So again, I'm probably in the middle of the two of you. It's interesting. that it, it, I, I do leave them on three months of treatment orally after the acute period of treatment. I don't tend to leave this patient for life unless this is a patient who has shown, demonstrated by other means that they have difficulty with handling the virus. So if someone had an encephalitis before, which is also viral, or if it's a second eye, then, then we will keep them for life, or they have only one eye, uh, then that would be, they'll be kept for life. Uh, but most of the other patients, we tend to stop treatment after the three months, sometimes a bit longer. So again, we are kind of, it's, it's important to show that we have different practices, that, that this is not one absolute you know, outcome. And the important thing to mention here, this is an uncommon condition. So trials are not available to back any of the things we do in terms of uh, proper evidence. So we, that's why we see the differences in our practices. That's an important point to make. Another question to both of you now. Is there any role for introducing steroids in treating ARN? So, Sarah, you go first. Well, this is a tough question. (laughs) I don't like this question. We use them, but this is really very parsimoniously. Um, I tend to use them locally with drops, drops of steroids. Really, the lowest, the better. Uh, The lower, the better, sorry. We know that retritis is going to take time to clear up. So, I really... I, I'm not trying to rush the, the clearance. I just tend to give it time. It's going to clear up. So um, no, not really. I, I tend really to not to use them if it's possible. Fantastic. So Monsef, what's your take on steroids? Do you use them? Never? Sometimes? 
I think that uh, in ARM, the inflammatory reaction is so important, so marked, that we need maybe uh, corticosteroid uh, therapy to control this inflammatory uh, uh, reaction. And uh, this is important to minimize the damage to ocular stru structures. However, oral uh, corticosteroids uh, should be uh, given after uh, regression, after uh, necrosis starts to regress. It is important not to give uh, patients steroids uh, in active necrotizing retinitis. So we have to make sure that uh, uh, retinitis, uh, the, uh, the viral uh, the viral component is under control to, to start uh, corticosteroids. And uh, the dose used in our, in our clinical practice is between 0.5 and 1 milligram per day, uh, kilo per day for six to eight weeks. Uh, and uh, we have to monitor uh, very closely the patient for any uh, worsening of retinitis. But I think that uh, the inflammation in arm is, is very important and uh, we need uh, maybe for a short uh, duration a treatment with corticosteroids, uh, but we, uh, after making sure that necrosis is not uh, progressing. I think that we have to differentiate between the interior and posterior segment inflammation. Posterior segment, honestly, when I was a resident, uh, we used to give them uh, oral steroids to try to clear it up. And then things changed. I don't know why or how. And now we don't do it anymore. And patients don't do, they do well without oral steroids in terms of vitritis. If you have really an important, if, if the, the interior segment inflammation is severe, then maybe you can use drops or maybe uh, subconjunctival injections to try to decrease it because antivirals, maybe they, they're not going to work as well. But in terms of means of administration, local or oral, I saw the difference between what we did before, which was the IV and then oral steroids. And now what we do is only drops. I don't really see the difference. It's okay. even maybe better. They, they do not detach. <laughs> Okay, I, I think the for me routinely I do drops because these patients do come with the uh, anterior viatus. In terms of the oral steroids, it's, it's always a debate. But there are situations when I find the oral steroids may be needed. I think if I see an optic nerve that might be looking a bit uh, pale and, and swollen, which may indicate vasculitis involving the optic nerve, I think an attempt to rescue that, I, I use steroids. And in severe vitritis, I think I use it to try to reduce that because I'm not sure, it may be unfounded, but if that could increase potentially the risk of the attraction later on. Uh, but this would be my, my normal indications for introduction. But most of the times we don't use it and, and uh, there's no real evidence that the steroids make a difference. So it fits with what Sarah was saying, but I take the point Monsef was making and I do follow in some patients the use of the oral steroids as well. Um, I think that the take-home message is not to inject steroids in those cases. Absolutely, absolutely. Very yeah. badly. Stay away from intraocular steroids, absolutely. If you need to do anything, it will be oral under close supervision and only after you have you started your antiviral and you have evidence of response. That's when you can uh, kind of use your steroid as a way of minimizing the collateral damage. Just going towards uh, a few aspects before we finish this, because time is running for us, but any road for a adjunctive laser or retinopexy or vitrectomy as prophylaxis for retinal detachment? Uh, uh, Monsef, do you use any of those things for preventing detachment? 
I think that uh, laser may be difficult uh, because of ocular inflammation, poor dilation or and media opacities. Uh, and uh, we don't use laser uh, prophylax prophylactic treatment uh, uh, in a patient with uh, acute retinal necrosis. And uh, there is no uh, strong evidence for the uh, efficacy of uh, laser. And there are two, uh, two studies, two recent uh, meta-analyses uh, showing uh, conflicting results. One study showing uh, some efficacy for laser treatment and the other study showing no efficacy. So in clinical practice, if uh, laser is easily, we can be easily uh, made, we can use it, but we have to, to keep in mind that this treatment does not prevent uh, very uh, effectively uh, retinal detachment. So we don't use it as a routine. Okay, Sarah. Uh, I agree again. Uh, we don't really use it routinely, but uh, I mean, if the lesions are really peripheral and um, if, if there is not a lot of retritis, then maybe maybe you can do laser. Why not? The only question that I have is you have to perform the laser posterior to the diseased retina. And again, where is the diseased retina? You see, you can see the lesions of retinitis, the white lesions. This is fine, but the diseased retina can be more posterior to that. So where do you go? How far do you go? Uh, so this is uh, an important question to have in mind. Uh, but basically, we don't really do it. Yeah, I think we, we when you review the data, as Mosef was saying, when the trials compare uh, success and failure, you see that they're comparing two different things. The, the patients you can easily laser are the patients who had minimal vitritis at the time of the procedure, and the patients you cannot laser are the patients who had a lot of vitritis. So you can really compare outcomes of prevention when you have two very different scenarios here. And uh, we reviewed that many years ago and showed there was no hard evidence that the laser actually is beneficial. Uh, vitrectomy is a different story. I really don't have experience asking for vitrectomy in these patients. Uh, any of you would uh, recommend vitrectomy as prophylaxis for detachment? Honestly, again, there is no evidence-based data to perform vitrectomy. I do not do it. I'm a VR surgeon. I do not do it uh, as prophylaxis. I wait for the patient to detach to, to perform okay. it. Monsef, any role for vitrectomy? I agree with Sarah, no vitrectomy, no prophylactic vitrectomy. Okay, I have one final question in terms of management, uh, which is macular edema. What, what happens when these patients then are settling down and, and they're getting better, but then they come back and they have macular edema? How do you manage the macular edema? Keeping in mind, of course, we have now the fact that this patient had an intraocular infection, so the limitation of our options will be obvious. So uh, how do you go about that? So, Monsef, what do you do? Our, our first line approach is uh, subtenone, uh, uh, triamcinolone in combination with antivirus. This is our first line treatment for cystoid macular edema complicating acute retinal necrosis. And most cases occur late in the course of the disease after, after retinitis is completely controlled with antiviral. And uh, we don't use intra, intravitreal uh, corticosteroid therapy for cystoid macular edema. We, uh, we have a couple of cases treated with intravitreal and type AGF uh, without good results. And uh, sometimes we treat with oral corticosteroids, but in all of this uh, situation, we use uh, high-dose antivirals in combination with corticosteroid. Okay, Sarah, what's your approach? Okay, so we, we do it a bit differently. Um, again, I think it's not advisable to use intravitreous uh, dexamethasone. This is not something you, you, you should do ever. 
So it depends on the severity of macular edema. If it's really a small macular edema, we can propose local therapy with steroids and also non-steroid anti-inflammatory drops, uh, something like an Irvine gas therapy. And for other cases, uh, we've been trying anti-VHF that can work sometimes, but I feel that the best option is really interferon that has both an anti-inflammatory and antiviral function. And this can be administered um, systemically. This works pretty well. Personally, I haven't got a lot of things with interferon. We, we don't use very much in the UK. I think uh, you guys have more uh, in other parts of Europe. But yeah, clearly what you described of interfering, what we know about the, the mechanism of action and its ability to produce an anti-inflammatory effect and also an antiviral effect makes it a very attractive option in, in some situations. Monsef, uh, you, you use interfering at all? Have you had experience with that? We don't use interferon because interferon is not available in our setting. Okay. However, I have a question to Sarah. Is interferon effective in the long term? In the long term, you mean um, after a couple of months, a couple of years? Honestly, yes, those patients yes. that I have, I don't have that many. You know, this is a, not a, this is a rare disease. Uh, I have a couple of patients and they've been doing well for... I don't know. They've been having this macular edema for two or three years, and now it's 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 gone. So yeah, it it works. It works. It's really a good option. I feel it's really the best option because it has two functions: against the virus and again against the inflammation. Very well. One, one final point: we just about to close. We didn't touch on this, but I think it's an important thing to mention. Any role of imaging. In, in anything we talked about, diagnosing or monitoring these patients, do you, uh, Sarah, use imaging to help you? I mean, we do multimodal imaging for all patients. We use uh, ultra-wide field imaging to follow them up. OCT can be uh, very uh, important, too, to look for complications, macular edema, macular ischemia. And, uh, as I mean, are you asking for angiography or other kind of imaging no, I think it's uh, if, you, if you use support from imaging, it could be angiograms to you know for diagnostic purposes uh, or uh, monitoring patients with uh, uh, as you say photographs or OCT. Yeah, any, yeah. I mean, the minimal thing you can do is, is is photographs and OCT. This is the minimal things, and then angiograms maybe initially just to see if there is vasculitis, if there is uh, occlusive vasculitis, ischemia, if there is uh, papillitis, and those kinds of complications. But this is mainly uh, a baseline. Monsef, final this final point for you. Any any role for imaging? I think that fluorescent angiography is not necessary in uh, in ARN. However, it uh, it may help differentiate between, for example, acute necrosis and atypical toxoplasmosis. And uh, the same for OCT, if OCT is possible, because OCT uh, can be uh, made in. Uh, posterior lesions and the OCT may may help differentiate between uh, toxoplasmic lesion and non-toxoplasmic lesion, including viral uh, viral retinitis. Okay. Well, I think we come to the end of this, this, this discussion here. I'd like to thank very much both Sarah and Monsef for this excellent discussion. I think it shows very clearly this is an uncommon condition, fortunately. Uh, so we don't have real good data from trials. It's a lot of this is coming from our experience, from our centers and from publishing information we have. Uh, but it shows very well that there is a very a good approach. You, you, what you heard here tonight is how you manage your patient in the acute phase, how do you 
keep these patients on treatment to protect them for a long time? And how do you manage the complications of, of this condition? So a serious problem that needs to be recognized early, tackled early, as aggressive as you can to try to preserve vision of the affected eye and prevent involvement of the second eye in the long term. So thank you both for this wonderful discussion. I really enjoyed a lot and learned from you. I'd like to thank again, Aretna, for the time. So hope to see you guys again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, just to echo Carlos, Sarah and Monsef, thank you so much for giving up your time to share your insights because this is what's great about a podcast when there isn't a lot of literature getting to hear from experts on how they deal with a rare and challenging condition like this. Uh, it's really wonderful. So thanks again to all of our faculty today. That's it for this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more Talking You Retina. If you'd like us to cover anything on the podcast, we would love to hear about it. Email us podcast at uretina.org. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Talking You Retina.